1: The great chronicler of the Gilded Age, American writer and novelist Edith Wharton had a life that, at times, one could say mirrored that of some of her characters. There were moments of joy, sadness, optimism, and some endings that perhaps never found complete resolution. Biographers started work on the story of Edith Wharton's life beginning in the late 1960s and through the 1970s and into the 80s, newly discovered letters and writings came to light that revealed a particular relationship that she had had. A love affair with American journalist Morton Fullerton conducted in Paris from roughly 1907 to 1910 while she remained married to her husband Teddy. The affair affected her deeply and transformed her, one could say, as a writer as well as a woman. I myself became really fascinated with this moment in her life, and as many of you know, devoted an entire episode recently to telling the story. But this was a story that Wharton never told herself. But there was another story that Edith Wharton did tell, and as she got older, she looked back at the years of her childhood and the gilded age that from that vantage point of the 1920s had long since disappeared. Her masterpiece, The Age of Innocence, written and published, and given the Pulitzer Prize for fiction, appeared just at the beginning of the 1920s. When Wharton died in 1937, she left an unfinished manuscript of a novel called The Buccaneers, which again was set in those years of the Gilded Age and told the story of the young women from New York families who, in an effort to shore up shaky social positions, were packed off to Europe to marry impoverished, and that term is relative, impoverished aristocrats thereby trading American cash for European coronets. The first of these women is often considered to be Jenny Jerome, who, in order to secure her family's position, married Lord Randolph Spencer Churchill in Paris in 1874. Jenny named her first child Winston, and brought him up with her drive, strength, and perception. Although it seems that Jenny married for love, the marriage had its challenges, isolation, and pain. Edith Wharton used the stories of a number of these women who forged these transatlantic marriages, or were forced to, as models for her characters in The Buccaneers, a story that she never finished telling. The former Jenny Jerome, who had become Lady Randolph Churchill, like Edith Wharton herself, certainly had moments of drama and doubt in both her public and private relationships. Today's show takes a unique look at the intimate lives of both Edith Wharton and Jenny Jerome, and so many of their public and private contradictions, conflicted emotions, but ultimately both women's power, creativity, and resolve. Thanks to the vision and the talent of my guest today, playwright and actor Anne Underland, now we can find unique insight into both women's private worlds by seeing their lives dramatized on stage. This is Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every two weeks we look into the worlds both light and dark during New York's Gilded Age, Paris's Belle Epoque, and the late Victorian and Edwardian eras of England. Just about a week after my show, A Sprig of Witch Hazel, Edith Wharton's Secret Affair went live, I received an email from my guest, Anne Underlin. Anne, as you will shortly see, had dug deeply into this particular moment in Wharton's life and had taken it farther than anyone thus far. She had dramatized it for the stage. Anne and I began this wonderful virtual correspondence, and I wanted to bring her onto the show not only to add her viewpoint and insight about what we can know of Wharton from this long hidden experience, but also similarly what intrigued her about the life of Jenny Jerome, which led to a dramatic treatment of her life as well. So we'll be dipping into it all, including a discussion of the challenges of dramatizing Wharton's own life. A look at attempts thus far to dramatize her fiction and perhaps some similarities even between Edith Wharton and Jenny Jerome, who one could say inspired some of Edith's own writing. Anne Undelin, a diplomat's daughter who was born in Egypt, is a theater artist who works both as a playwright and an actor. Her performing credits include productions with companies in New York City, as well as in the Berkshires of Massachusetts, including the acclaimed Shakespeare and Company and Great Barrington Public Theater. Her plays have been performed around the country and have gained awards and the recognition of critics. Her play, Lady Randy, based on the life of Jenny Jerome, has been produced by Wham! Theatre at Shakespeare and Company in Lenox, Massachusetts. And her newest play, Mr. Fullerton, Between the Sheets, based on the relationship between Edith Wharton and Morton Fullerton, had its premiere last summer at Great Barrington Public Theater and will be performed with great anticipation by Boston's Gloucester stage this coming July. And... I so completely welcome you to the Gilded Gentleman.
2: Oh, thank you, Carl. I loved your podcast about Edith Wharton called A Sprig of Witch Hazel. And as soon as I I heard it, I immediately sat down on my computer and started writing you and thinking, oh, I must know this person. And then you got back to me almost instantly. And here we are. And
1: the conversation has never stopped, right? (laughs) I
2: hope it never does. No, it won't.
1: So, Anne, let's just start. We have so much to talk about. Let's Mm. start with Mr. Fullerton Between the Sheets. So you have chosen a very well-known literary figure, but then a much less known yet really deeply significant in, in Edith Wharton's life. Can you share a little bit about, to start off here, why you chose to dramatize Edith Wharton in the first place? And secondly, why this particular moment and that particular story?
2: Oh, Carl. Well, I love a love story. Who doesn't love a love story? And I lived in the Berkshires for a number of years. And so Edith Wharton, she's just in the air everywhere. I mean, of course, her house, The Mount is there. But also, Ethan Frome and her other novella, which she called her Hot Ethan, Summer, is based on, you know, communities in the Berkshires. So she's just in the air. And she's been in my thinking for a number of years. And then in the 1990s, I came across an article about a midlife affair that Edith Wharton had with Morton Fullerton. And I remember thinking, huh, well, that's interesting. But I sort of filed it away. And then a few years later, I came across some erotica that Edith Wharton wrote. Um It's called The Palmetto Fragment. And it's extraordinarily hot. There's nothing about it that is that feels Victorian, it feels very contemporary. And I thought, my goodness, Edith. And still, I filed it away. And then, a few years later, during the pandemic, I sat down and read the letters that she wrote her lover, Morton Fullerton. And I just, I was so struck by them because I remember reading them and thinking, oh my goodness, that this could have been me. Well, it couldn't have been me because it's Edith Wharton, and (laughs) she writes a great deal better than anybody I can think of. But for the feeling and the vulnerability and the yearning and the kind of love madness that was in these letters, it really touched a nerve. And I think that Edith Wharton fell headlong in love, which is, as we know, it's a, it's a terrible experience, but it's a glorious experience. And I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. <laughs> and I hope it happens to everybody. And I thought, oh, there's a play there. There's the play. Because I know as a playwright, if something really kind of makes my antennae go up, and I'm, you know, I'm a little bit like a bloodhound, and I start sort of sniffing around, and I think, oh, this is very interesting. When I get that kind of an excitement response to something that I read or come across, I have a pretty good sense that that something interesting dramatically can come from it. So that's how it all began.
1: And that was such an extraordinary moment in her life because Edith Wharton is 45 years old. She's been married to Teddy Wharton for a number of years. This was a very unplanned, unlikely moment that's as love can certainly be sometimes. So when you started thinking about this relationship in terms of a dramatic piece, how did you start to think about constructing the story?
2: Well, you know, what you're saying is exactly right. Um, Henry James used to call her the eagle (laughs) and the angel of devastation, because she could just level people. And she was always the smartest person in the room. And she always just had everything completely, I think it must have seemed completely sewn up. And she was surely very intimidating. She did not suffer fools gladly. And so for this person... To be at this moment in her life, to kind of fall in headlong, madly, improbably in love, felt like something I wanted to dramatize. So when I went about writing it, it was a little tricky because on one huge level, I mean, who am I to put words into Edith (laughs) Warden's mouth? I mean, really, who am I? And so initially I thought, well, I'll just paste together a lot of quotes, and, and then somehow a play will come out of this. And, um, you know, that's pretty terrible, because you can't, y- you have to write the way you write. Like, your introduction just now was absolutely wonderful, and that's Carl Raymond writing like Carl Raymond. We have to sort of write and speak the way we do. So I came across a reference to Edith Wharton having had buck teeth. And then I started looking at pictures of Edith Wharton. And if you look at the pictures of Edith Wharton, especially when she's young, she's doing this funny thing with her mouth. And I know she's covering her teeth because she's embarrassed about them. So I then thought in my mind, oh, what would happen if those teeth, if she has a lover who makes her see her teeth in, in some sort of different light, or who who's able to look at this thing that she's always hated and always hated about herself, and just look at it and love it. And so I wrote the initial scene to the play, which is really about that, or that figures prominently in the scene. And what's funny is it's still one of my favorite scenes in the play, and yet I can't really remember actually writing it. Um, so I wrote it, and then I brought it to one of my writers' groups. I'm, I'm part of a couple of writers' groups. I deeply believe in them. And a fellow p- playwright, who also intimidates me, turned to me and said, you know, Anne, this is the best thing you've ever written. And I thought, oh, I'm on to something. And then we were off to the races. And then after that scene... I then introduce Edith to the various characters in her life. And the next scene I wrote was a scene where Henry James and Edith Wharton reunite in her parlor in Paris after having been apart for a long time.
1: I thought that was fascinating because one of the things, my listeners, about this play is that there are very few characters. Uh, We have Edith, we have Fullerton, we'll we'll get to to him. Uh, But we have Henry James,
2: I know. You know, if I'm putting words into people's mouths, you know, Edith Wharton, Henry James, just hubris all around. Right.
1: <laughs> and and that was another, of course, of a very different sort, but deeply important relationship that Edith had. So you've got these dramatic portraits, not only of Edith Wharton, but also of, of Henry James, who was deeply private, too. So what were the challenges in creating a characterization for James, as well as Wharton?
2: Oh, I have such a huge soft spot for Henry James. He was subject to, to deep and dangerous bouts of depression. And there were times when his friends actually were kind of on what seemed to be, when you read the letters, suicide watches for Henry. He, he really had this dark, dark, dark side um, And yet he was very funny. He was a wonderful gossip. He was great to have at a dinner party. He was a little bit of a dandy. And um I think he and Edith sort of recognized each other and respected each other. And there's this beautiful letter where Edith is writing about Henry, deeply concerned about Henry because he's in one of his depressions. So the opening scene of the play where, or this, the opening scene with, between the two of them has Henry coming into her parlor having just emerged from one of his depressions. And so she's really happy to see him. But there are a few moments where she really is, you know, she really says to him, you know, it's, it's just, it's wonderful to see you looking so well. But they were, intellectual compatriots. You know, they were these kind of American Europeans back and forth all the time between Europe and America. I think they enjoyed each other a great deal, but they were also very competitive with each other. And it drove Henry James crazy that Edith Wharton was as popular as she was. The the House of Mirth sold 150,000 copies. And you've been in publishing, Carl. That is just an insane number. Even today? Even today. Yeah, absolutely. And his books were
1: selling, what, a quarter of that, maybe? There's that wonderful line that you, you bring into the play where Edith says to, to Henry, and you'll never be the male Edith Wharton. <laughs> yes. Well, do you think he wanted to be? I think
2: he, he, well, here's the thing. He wanted to be more financially successful and she wanted to be taken more seriously. And so the two of them were constantly sort of jockeying that, that kind of competition. So yeah, I think he wanted to have the kind of popular um popular acceptance that she had. And I think she wanted to be taken more seriously. And, you know, it, it's interesting. You look at criticism even now. Edith Wharton is always compared to Henry James. And Henry James is almost never compared to Edith Wharton. It's like the man sets the standard. And that was something I wanted to sort of push up against in my play. But I think it drove them both crazy. But I think it was also part of that... You know that thing when you're playing tennis with someone who's as good as you are and it ups your game. I think their relationship with each other upped their game in a lot of ways. And the other way I sort of conceived the relationship and constructed it is I see it as Obviously, a completely platonic relationship, um, but a bit of a father-daughter relationship. Henry James was a good deal older than she was. He recommended that she write about her own society. Um, you know, they read each other's you know, they read each other's work, they um, you know, they were constantly sparring, but I think they were constantly really encouraging each other as well.
1: I think one of the really fascinating things to me is Edith, of course, was deeply, deeply intellectual, and was through her entire life. And that was certainly something, as you said a few minutes ago, that connected her to James. That was also something that connected her to Fullerton, hmm. you know, is is I, I see the three of them as having that that shared connection. However, it went in different directions of course with with both of them but that's something that she didn't share in the same way with with teddy i think oh, that's absolutely one the, not that's one of the things about that the marriage is that he was affable they shared a love of travel but he was never her intellectual equal so let's talk about that mr fullerton mr uh, fullerton. mr fullerton himself now he was certainly I call him duplicitous. That's being Mm -hmm. kind, a little shadowy character. What interest does he hold for you as as a character or as a dramatic being?
2: Oh, Morton Fullerton is fascinating. I think largely for me because in many ways he's an also-ran. And I think that that character is a really interesting character. I mean, Morton Fullerton is in no way Iago, but, you know, a a person who – would spend time in the company of these extraordinary people and know that he, he certainly was entertaining in conversation and he could converse about anything, but that his writing would never be anything near theirs. And so to, to have that kind of, um, I think he wanted it to be that way and to sort of be on the edges of greatness all the time and know that he didn't really have that within himself creates, makes room for a really fascinating character and a character study. But I will say the thing about Morton Fullerton also that really fascinated me is he was so universally seductive and desired. In many ways, the play is a bit of a love triangle. Henry James had a crush on him. You know, Edith Wharton fell headlong in love with him. And Morton Fullerton was, I think, as uncomplicated as it could be in that era. But I think he was firmly bisexual, and everybody was in love with him. And I think his power was in the bedroom, and I think he really enjoyed waking that part of people up. But I think that the the sexual part of people's natures is given short shrift, and I think Edith Wharton certainly took her own sexual nature, it didn't even pay any attention to it, um, until Morton came along. And then she's, she falls completely in its, in its thrall. I mean, I think it has tremendous power. And as a playwright, sex is a really interesting thing to write about because it's both utterly revealing, obviously, but it's still deeply mysterious. And people will do some of the most extraordinary things for it. Even now, I don't know if you've noticed, but (laughs) I don't think that ever changes.
1: But you know, when you look at the world that she came from, I mean, that incredibly difficult, constrictive, restrained world. I mean, the famous story of she asked her mother the night before she was going to be married, like what do married women do when you know her mother tossed that off, and when you read the letters between Wharton, well, that Wharton wrote to I mean, there is this just vulnerability and this, you know, which feels very 16 year old, but here was a mature woman that was that had these these feelings. I mean, it's just, it was extraordinary.
2: It was and I think that Morton Fullerton, you know, one, one wants to judge a person because they have lots of lovers and and You do, you must, because it causes so much pain in people and caused so much pain for Edith. It really was bewildering to her. But I I really think that Morton Fullerton was one of these people who just kind of loved the one he was with. And I think, the problem was he was with many. And so, you know, he was constantly on the run, a Peter Pan, if there ever was one. And, you know, Edith kept wanting to make him hers. And, you know, that just wasn't possible for a man of his, a man of his character.
1: And I find it fascinating that even after the affair ended, you know, 1910-ish, they, you know, went their separate ways, sort of, but they did not they completely. End, yes, they did not completely end their connections, and and they were friends really for many years um, after that. Although he never gave her the letters back, which he never <laughs> gave her the letters back.
2: But there was a, apparently there was a little back and forth too. There were times when she was like, "Oh, keep them," and times when she was like, right. "No, you must give them back." And you know, it's a little sad though because I think it was only in sort of needy old age that he winds up selling them because he wasn't also ran. He didn't, you know, he didn't have real achievement.
1: Another character, it's actually not a character, it's characters that I want to ask you about. This may be a surprise question. Oh, is it the dogs? It's the dogs. (laughs) Because let me explain for our listeners, Edith Wharton famously loved dogs and she always had three, four, five running around in all her various homes and, 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 And they're all small little yapping creatures running all over it. She loved, dearly, dearly loved them. But you have the the offstage characters of the dogs in, in the play. And I wanted to ask you about that. What role did they perform?
2: Oh, well, I think they're sort of the the harbingers of of people coming to the apartment, obviously. By the way, there's a dog cemetery at the Mount in Lenox. It's so sweet. And Edith Wharton, she loved her dogs. She loved them. And she... You know, it's interesting. I came across some some writings of hers where she she really believed that she could actually communicate with them. And so she, she, you know, and then on another level, what creature, like, jumps up and down and does somersaults for joy simply because you came home? I mean, really. <laughs> um, but the thing is, is that the dogs in the play, they bark when Henry comes in, but they don't bark when Morton comes in. And Morton has a special way with the dogs. And so... It's the way into, it's It's one of the primary ways to Edith's heart is he disarms the dogs, which then disarms Edith, because on some level, they're kind of her gatekeepers on on in some way.
1: I thought they were very important. I'm I so glad they're we had so this talk so I'm so glad you brought <laughs> them up. <laughs> I'm so curious about, again, Unprocessed. So when you had the concept of this play and you knew you wanted to dramatize it, how did this whole thing evolve from you starting out with readings and a workshop process? And how did the whole thing evolve to finally getting it on the stage? Did you change your allegiance to characters? Did you change perspective or insight? Or what happened over the course of the play's creation?
2: I wanted to create something that will only work in theater. That isn't something that would actually be better as a movie or better as a novel. I want something that I wanted something that was really specific to the stage. You know, there was this wonderful production in um, Great Barrington last summer, but I realized that there were things that needed to change for the Gloucester stage production that's coming up, and um, some of it w- was structural. And the biggest one was the. Um, the breakup scene between um, Edith and Morton, um, I made it much more physical. And I made, Edith is not the winner, but she's definitely the protagonist of that scene in a much more definite way.
1: So let's scope out a little bit here and um, talk about Wharton's work that has been dramatized by by others over the years, and her work really has. There have been a number of of dramatic treatments throughout the early 20th century, but I think probably people's most most well known or famous is Scorsese's 1993, The Age of Innocence, which I think is simply brilliant. The reason I bring it here, bring it up here is that you commented to me in your very first email to me (laughs) when you said that you felt that the age of innocence was the most violent film that scorsese had ever made and i've just saved that question to ask you here can you explain why
2: Well, actually, that's a quote from Martin Scorsese, who said that it was the most violent movie that he had ever made, which um, really drew my attention. I thought, my God, really? And then I started thinking about it. And, you know, the story, Gilded Age Society, in many ways, you know, it had a very definite code. And mafia movies have a very definite code. And when someone breaks the code um, as... Edith Wharton's, you know, protagonists do, and certainly Edith does in my own play, when you break the code, things happen, and it sets things in motion, and there are definitely consequences for it. So in The Age of Innocence, the, the love between Ellen Olenska and Newland Archer is so systematically and surgically and viciously destroyed. I think that's why Scorsese said that it was his most violent movie. But it really, it took me by surprise when I read that quote because, you know, obviously he's famous for his violent movies and the movie that doesn't have a drop of blood is the one that
1: he says is his most violent. But that's what I think is so fascinating Mm -hmm. about it because when you look at The Age of Innocence, you can look at it on one level as, you know, beautiful dresses and costumes and elegant dinner parties. And I think that the, The most important moment of that is that dinner party at the end of the novel when Newland and May, as a young married couple, are having this first dinner. And it's, you know, the send-off dinner for Elena Lenska. That is a vicious, vicious moment. But nothing is said. It's all, you know, what you don't say that says all of it, not what you do say. And it's a very violent scene emotionally. And and that is how I would certainly interpret that. Do you agree with that? Very, yeah. very, very yeah. much so.
2: Absolutely. Right. You know, it's interesting. These other um sort of movies of 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 Wharton kind of all came out in the nineties. She had a moment back then. And I feel with the TV show The Gilded Age that there's another moment for her now.
1: I'm so glad there is this sort of renaissance of these writers, you know, created partially by the, the HBO series Gilded Age, but just this interest, people are really looking at them. So not to give away a spoiler, but the end of Mr. Fullerton Between the Sheets, I found fascinating because we see Edith writing again, as you mentioned earlier, but she's working on Ethan Frome. And that is a really interesting, you know, for so many people, that's the first experience people have reading Wharton, which is so not a good first experience. I mean, it's a wonder, it's a brilliant novella, but it's just not typical for so many reasons. Mm-hmm. However, I think it's fascinating when you look at Ethan Frome now with the lens that you've certainly given us today we see a fictional depiction of another love triangle, Mm -hmm. correct? Yes, absolutely we do.
2: Yeah. And I have to think that her love affair with Morton Fullerton had some kind of effect on that grim but brilliant novella.
1: Differently, do you feel the affair with Fullerton changed her? Absolutely,
2: absolutely. I think it changed. Her. I think it had a cascading effect on the rest of her life. She there's a quote where she says, um, "I should write better for this experience of loving," which kind of makes me choke up a little bit. Um, but I think she, you know, her, her life had a fullness to it, and her writing developed a fullness from that from that affair. How could it not?
1: Absolutely, and and I. Think *Age of Innocence* and and along some of the other work would would not have the qualities that it did if if she hadn't had. Well, that I think experience. her
2: true masterpieces come after. Yeah, you know, yeah. *The Age of Innocence* and *Ethan Frome*. I mean, those are those are really the great ones. And the pretext, a couple of short stories, they come after.
1: I agree. So now it is time to take a little break, so I can refill my teacup, and we will be back in just a moment.
0: you ever brought your magic to walt disney world like hey we came to play did you tip your tiara to a creole princess or get goofy officially when we come through it's true magic because we came to play at walt disney world resort meet janice unfortunately her thing is sneeze attacks every time spring returns i literally sneezed 40 times in a row once Luckily for Janice, at the Walmart Pharmacy, she can get over-the-counter allergy relief for things like sneezing, runny nose, and watery eyes fast with online pickup or delivery. No more suffering. That's nothing to sneeze at. (laughs) I see what you did there. Help survive allergy season with fast online pickup or delivery from Walmart. Welcome to an easier pharmacy. Welcome to your Walmart.
2: Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes
0: has arrived in IMAX.
1: I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, and I'm joined today by playwright and actor Anne Underland, whose work has included dramatizations of the lives of both Edith Wharton and Jenny Jerome, Lady Randolph Churchill. So Anne, now I want to switch over. We spent a lot of time before the break talking about Edith Wharton and your and your work, Mr. Fullerton, Between the Sheets, and Edith Wharton, but I want to switch over now to your play Lady Randy which was the story of Jenny Jerome as I said in my introduction so I want to give listeners a little background on Jenny Jenny was born in 1854 in New York, and she grew up in the Gilded Age. Her father was Leonard Jerome. He was known as the King of Wall Street, and he'd come from fairly modest means, but he was willing to wheel and deal and made and lost I don't know how many fortunes along the way. Yet, despite all of that, society's doors were very much closed to Jenny and her family. So, her, well, partly because her father carried on a number of very public affairs and scandals right
2: (laughs) he was a scandalous kind of guy yes and they
1: just did not come from one of new york's oldest families and there was some question of heritage this sort of thing so jenny was taken to europe to find a match in paris or london which of course she ultimately did so what was it about jenny that intrigued you over all of this and that you wanted to show us theatrically
2: Oh, Jenny Jerome is so fascinating as well. Um, she, Incidentally, she and Edith Wharton were friends. And there's a letter from um, Edith to Jenny when Jenny's getting divorced, <laughs> which I think is so interesting. Anyway, um... Well, I was, you know, Carl, I was looking for a 19th century woman to write about. And it's kind of depressing if you try to sort of count on your, your your hand the number of women in the 19th century that have universal name recognition. Because, you, you know, there's Mary Todd Lincoln and Queen Victoria, and that's kind of it. So I realized that I probably would need to go through someone who was married to someone or the mother of someone or something like that. And I came across a reference to Jenny Jerome, and I looked at a picture of her, and I thought, oh, my goodness, who is this woman? And so I started doing some research on her, and I could not get enough. And one thing that also really piqued my interest because it kind of got my – got my dander up is um whenever she's referred to in, in 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 a lot of histories and in a lot of churchill movies because there's a million movies about churchill there's always some sort of implication that she was a harlot because she unapologetically had a number of lovers and so her behavior had it been done by a man would have probably been admirable but since it was done by a woman it's questionable and judged and seen as you know something kind of kind of dirty and I you know i'll be watching a movie that about winston churchill and if there's a reference to jenny jerome i'm sort of waiting for it and there it comes it's it's pretty interesting so when i see something like that again it makes my antennae kind of go up and say well who is this person what what was she actually doing
1: but she was a woman that had a lot of power i mean mm-hmm. she did she did marry for love i think she mm-hmm. fell in love with him and he with her but that soured relatively Very quickly, quickly mm-hmm. but she kept going. And can you talk a little bit about that? And, and you have played I Jenny know. Churchill. This was a role that you wrote for yourself. So I'm fascinated to know what you personally wanted to say through that role.
2: Well, she didn't have access to power herself, and it would have been fascinating to see what would have happened had Jenny Jerome been born a man. So she wielded it through the men in her life, and so she marries Randolph Churchill, and who, who, was brilliant, but he was, he, he had syphilis or whether he had syphilis or not. There's a lot of mm, question over it, but for the purposes of Jenny's story, she thought he had syphilis. And so it's not clear when she found out when, but I posit that it happened really early. And I was interested in what happens in a marriage between two passionate people when you take the sex out and you have to stay married. So Jenny remains married to Randolph Churchill and he's very ambitious as well but she really kind of helps him engineer this meteoric rise in politics and there was there was real talk of randolph churchill becoming prime minister but then his whatever was wrong with him he he was mad he was insane he was losing it on the floor of parliament he you know she had to get him she had to get him out of there so she takes him on this trip around the world and he winds up getting really sick in cairo and and then they wind up back in london where he dies but she's instrumental to his meteoric rise
1: but she really inspired her son Very don't much you think so. so much of those qualities and one of the early scenes in the play is is you see the influence her father had on her, the Wheeler dealer of certainly rough around the edges, Mr. Mm-hmm. Jerome was. But but there was a certain business acumen that he did, I think, transfer to her and she transferred to Winston do you agree with that oh
2: absolutely i mean i think that that you know winston churchill gives a lot of credit to his father for his you know political acumen and his his audacity and his bravery but i would argue that it comes from his brooklyn born mother jenny jerome who who was completely she was unintimidated by anything and she would she was completely audacious and she she became um such a supporter of Winston, especially in his early years, as he was rising in politics. Basically, Randolph dies, and then she just converts t- turns her energies to, to Winston. And he, he attributes his success to his mother, his early success to his mother. He said, there's a great quote, how does it go? It goes, she left no stone unturned, no string unpulled, no cutlet uncooked.
1: <laughs> I love that. It's good. I'm curious about the structure too, how you handled Lady Randy versus um Mr. Fullerton between the sheets, because in in Lady Randy, Jenny Jerome goes from five years old to a woman in her sixties, and you've played all of those ages and you've pulled many, many moments in her life as opposed to the structure of of Mr. Fullerton, which has Really, a, a much more confined time period. And can you talk about how that structure that you used for Lady Randy served that story better?
2: Yeah. Well, w- what I do with the, the the Lady Randy story is it's bookended by um, Jenny on her deathbed, and characteristically she died a really dramatic death. She had. Her her leg had been amputated above the knee. Um, she'd sprained her ankle, stumbling down. She, she fell down the stairs, sprained her ankle. She was wearing high heels that were a little too high. And gangrene set in. So she had to have her leg um, amputated above the knee. And she's in bed recovering. She's making jokes about dancing the one step. You know, she's doing all this sort of stuff. And then suddenly the wound gives way. And she bleeds to death. In a matter of minutes. So what I have, I have that as the opening scene and the closing scene of the play. I have Winston running in and the, the sort of idea of the story is she's got to tell him about the marriage to Randolph before she's gone. And so the, the, the scenes in the play build up to her marriage to Randolph, what her marriage to Randolph was like to his death. And then um, the, the penultimate scene is Jenny deciding to help Winston out as she had helped Randolph. And then the ultimate scene is she dies bleeding to death.
1: So putting on this on the stage really does add dimensions that we wouldn't get mm-hmm. in a normal biography, you know, mm. treatment. So, and if Edith Wharton and Jenny Jerome were sitting with us having a nice cup of tea at the table oh, today, that would be my dream. Be, what would you want to ask each of them? Given all the work and the research that you've done with both of them, what would you want to ask each of them? Well, first know?
2: of all, I'd want to ask what they 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 thought of each other. Can I give you another quote, the Lizzie Elmsworth quote? Of course. Okay, so. In The Buccaneers, Edith Wharton bases one of her characters on Jenny Jerome, Lizzie Elmsworth, and the quote goes, Lizzie was not a good-tempered girl, but she was too intelligent to let her temper interfere with her opportunities, which which is Jenny to a T and also Edith to a T, you know, that, that sentence with a teeny little barb. Right. Um, you know, well, first of all, I'd be hopelessly intimidated by the two of them, but... I think for Edith, you know, it's an interesting question. Would it be like the Edith that was born, you know, the 19th century Edith, or, or if Edith were born later? But I for Edith, I'd be really interested to know what she thought about the development of roles for women in society, and whether she'd be interested in writing a novella or a novel based on a character like AOC or Elizabeth Warren or women who have risen to the fore, you know, recently who may be a little bit controversial. Um, I'd be interested to know what Edith would think of these women. And if she were to write a novel about them, how, how would she go about it? And what would she, what would she write? And, um, for Jenny, I think I'd like to ask her about the play itself. You know, it's it's kind of a tragedy that she dies in 1921 and she doesn't ever see – she doesn't see Winston become Winston Churchill of World War II. And I'd love to ask her what she might think about that and then also what she might think about Winston Churchill's legacy today.
1: Are there other characters literary or not that you would like to look at and consider for theatrical treatment or other moments in in the characters that we've talked about today their lives that you'd like to put on stage
2: oh I'm at work on a one-woman show about Mozart's wife
1: Costanza and
2: Constanza yes very interesting so um yeah so I'm at work on 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 that you know they kind of come to me and again it's that antenna thing it's like if it if it sort of scratches a you know, kind of touches a nerve because, you know, a play is different from a documentary. You're, you're looking to affect the emotions more than you're looking to affect the mind. You, you want them both to be touched, but, but it's, it's really the heart before the head. Whereas when you're creating a documentary or a lecture or anything like that, it's the head before the heart. And if you move people, great, but it's, you know, it's a different, it's a different thrust. It's a different emphasis.
1: That really struck me, particularly when I was reading um, Mr. Fullerton, because you have, what, an hour and a half, something, mm-hmm. give, or, give or take. That's the time that you have with an audience to move them, to educate them, to take them to a new place, to introduce characters they may not know. I mean, that's a pretty hefty you know, deal for a, a dramatist to take. So you can't waste any moments, right? <laughs> I know. There's no
2: wasted time. There's no wasted time. And that's why you have to lean in. When you're writing a play, you have to lean into the the fiction of historical fiction. You have to conflate... Incidents, you you have to make some things up because you're looking. You're not looking for factual truth. You're looking for emotional truth, and they they can be one and the same, but they aren't always.
1: I think that's a really important important point, particularly as we look at this. So, my listeners, if you find yourself in New England this summer, I encourage you to pay a visit to Gloucester Stage between July first and July twenty sixth to see the play, Mister Fullerton Between the Sheets, and uh, now you will have some more rare insight into the world. Of Edith Wharton. Uh, The link to the theater and the show, those can be found on my website, thegildedgentleman.com, on the episode page there. And gosh, Anne, we could just go on and on, and I hope we will continue (laughs) to do that. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me today on The Gilded Gentleman.
2: Thank you, Carl. It's been wonderful.
1: (laughs) And to my listeners, thank you so much for joining me today on The Gilded Gentleman. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media. I invite you to become a patron of The Gilded Gentleman on Patreon. Patrons get early access to some content as well as some patron-only audio segments and early notice of live and virtual events, so please visit patreon.com thegildedgentleman. It is your support that truly helps me continue to produce this show. And join me in another two weeks for a look beneath the glitter and the gold. I'll see you soon. And after all, what's life without a little glint of gold?